Welcome to Trading with Rainer Show, the trading podcast where you'll gain trading insights to level up your trading so you can beat the markets. Let's start boosting your trading knowledge from your friend, Rainer Teal. Hey, hey, what's up, my friend? So just a heads up, today's episode is actually taken from one of my training videos. So let's get started. Hey, hey, what's up, my friend? So in today's episode, we have Adam Grimes. So Adam has been instrumental right, to my development as a price action trader. So clearly, I'm excited to have him on today's episode. So Adam has been trading since the 1990s. He has traded for institutions, prop firms, and even hedge funds. And Adam is primarily a discretionary trader. But unlike most discretionary traders, he actually does a lot of statistical testing right, to the technical analysis, to the patterns right, that he trades so that he, he knows that it has an edge in the markets and it's not just random, random luck. Yeah? So this is why in today's session, right, we'll talk about Adam's growing up years and how he got started in the financial markets. We will talk about patterns, a ton of it. We talk about number one, the failure test pattern. We talk about trend continuation patterns. Like for example, when the market is, is trending, many traders will wait for example, for the price to break out of the bull flag, the high of the bull flag before they get long. But not for Adam. He actually entered right before the breakout and he will go into the specifics to how he does it. Then we talk about the complex pullback pattern. We talk about the snap pattern, right, which allows you to get in at the start of an entry, right, where a new trend could possibly develop, yeah? And we talk about trade management, where to set your stop loss, where to set your targets, how to manage your trade from start to finish, all this and more. So if you ask me, it's like kind of like a mini masterclass in technical analysis, right? So if that sounds good to you, then guess what? Let's get started. Okay, so welcome, Adam, to the show. So before you know, we get started, I just want to say thank you, my appreciation for you because you know you have written one book, right? A book that really shaped my trading, the art and science of technical analysis. So I'm not sure if people who are watching this have read this book. To me, it's one of the most comprehensive technical analysis book that I've come across, right? Because you cover things like you know patterns, right? All traders love patterns, and don't right. worry, we'll talk more about that later in today's session. But you dive deeper into trade management, risk management, and I thought it's a very comprehensive book, right? It's packed with a ton of detail. It's not a book that you can just finish in in one setting. There you have it. That's the book I'm That's talking right. about. <laughs> right? It's not possible yeah. to finish in one setting. It's like a a. a, a uh, as thick as a you know a dictionary or something along those yeah. lines. And if I'm not wrong, it's like 600 pages. If I if I recall, I read it multiple times. So so thank you so much, right, for sharing your wealth thank of you. knowledge. And that I think was thank written you. like was it 10 years ago, like 20, it's about 10 years ago, which is there you have it. Time flies. It's scary. Yes, yeah. it's a fantastic. And I think the biggest takeaway that I had from that book, right, the one that really made me go, damn. Maybe it wasn't written in the book, but in one of your videos where you know you made traders tell us to draw some random lines on the chart without yeah. looking at it, and then look at the chart and you realize how your eyes will find patterns when there are no patterns there right. at all. That was right. a very good experiment and it, it blew my mind away. So thank you so much, Adam. I love that that piece of work that you've produced. Thank you so You're much. You're welcome. And th thank you for your kind words. I, um, you know, it's a book that I think has, has really helped a lot of people. And this has been uh, since in the decade since I published the book, one of the most exciting things is hearing about people and just accumulating the you know, the virtual stacks of emails from people saying this book was what I needed to really kind of push me over the top. And so it's been, it's been an honor. Writing the book was certainly a part of my journey because I had, you know, I had all of these pieces lying around. I had all of these things that I was doing, but as you know, as a discretionary trader, and we should talk about that too. There's a lot to talk about here. Uh, I found myself 
not always doing what I should be doing, you know, knowing that I should do one thing and doing something else. And once you write a book or once you start teaching in general and you tell people, here's what you should do, it's great for the teacher too, because it keeps you from doing really stupid things yourself. You know, you'll say, oh, I read about that in the book and I was like, I can't, I can't do this thing. So it was, uh, it was a journey for me. It was a, it was a, great thing to create that on a number of levels. I'll tell you something that I don't think a lot of people know. Uh, I wrote the book in about 40 days. I 40 wrote, days? No way. Yes. I, I've written but, books myself and there's no way. 40 days. So, wow, what is crazy. So so what I did, I tend to have, and this is this is not a, uh, it's not a superpower that anybody should try to copy, but I basically, with everything I do in my life, I have two settings, either off, like we're just not doing the thing, or if I do it, we're doing it all the way. And I just committed to, it was actually like 44 days or something. I committed to writing every single day, trying to write about 3000 words a day. And it was most of what I did. Uh, I wrote this and I'll tell you why I don't think I've ever told this story publicly. So I largely wrote this book in an Irish pub here in Jersey city, which is just outside of New York city. And the staff kind of knew me as the guy who was writing the book. And I had my corner in the pub and they would keep me you know, pretty, pretty well taken care of with food and Guinness. And so uh, it was, was, I, I never worked on anything this big. Yeah, I, I had to do had to do a lot of planning. Had this whole kind of like skeleton planned out, and then I just sat down and wrote the book. Now the editing, of course, was brutal, and this was where I was fortunate to have a really top quality team of editors and people doing all the production stuff. That actually made me a much better writer. I'm a very clean writer. I don't make a lot of mistakes writing, but there's still you know, when you have, yeah, you've written books. Have you, have you ever written a book and written the exact same thing twice in the book? That was something that I found that I did more than once because I have in my head, this thing is so important. I must say it. And, you know, I, I didn't even realize when, when you're just writing, writing, writing that I actually written it twice. And the editor was like, you do know that this is actually the same thing you wrote. And so, uh, you know, very obvious things like that. And then every single sentence was very carefully massaged and, and uh, nuanced. So I've, I enjoyed the process. I have since then, I've written another book that was uh, largely designed to support this free training course that I put out. And I've started a few other books that just have not a uh, book on systematic trading and a book on psychology that just have not come together for various reasons. It felt to me that this book that I wrote, the two books that I wrote were really like kind of in my head struggling to get out somehow. And these others will get there, but they're not quite at that level of formation. You need to go back to the, to the pub, right? Soon. Maybe that's it. Get your that, drinks, get that, your food. That, that pub is gone. So maybe I'll have to find another one where I can just camp out for a couple months. Awesome. And, and I'm just curious, how long did the editing process take? You say you take about 44 days to come up with the rough manuscript. What about the editing process? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember exactly. I could check my email here, but uh, a long, long time, many months, I think. Um, probably most of a year. Uh, right. maybe, maybe more like nine months, but it was brutal. And honestly, you know, by the time, 
you get and the funny thing was that this was half what what you have when 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 you hold this book that's half the book the first book i wrote was twice as much um because it included a lot of statistical stuff and the um again, another funny story. I don't think I've ever told some of these stories. So you go through this entire grueling process and they send you a final copy of the book before it goes to print. And I had literally, I remember it was a Sunday night. I had literally gone through that very carefully. And I was having some unease about the book because it was a combination of, well, the book you have and a lot of like really heavy statistical stuff. And I was having a little bit of unease, but mostly, you know, I'd just been fighting this battle for a year and I was done with it. I didn't even want to think about it. And literally within two minutes of me putting down the copy being done with it, phone rang and it was one of my readers, Linda Rashke, who'd read it. And she said, Adam, uh, I don't think you can publish this like it is. You, you got to go back to the drawing board. So at that point, um, I went through with Wiley again, and we went through the process of basically, and the book is much better for that. You know, she was absolutely right. I would not have made that decision myself because I just wanted to be done with it. But I really needed somebody else to say, uh, you know, all of this statistical work, really detracts from what you're trying to teach people. And I think the statistical work is very, very important. And there certainly is a certain kind of reader. And I, you know, I am that kind of reader. Like, I want to know the numbers, you know, it's not enough for you to just tell me how this thing works. I want to see the numbers behind it. But I bet if I had given you the first version of that book, you would, it would not have resonated with you so much. So for all of these other people, and I had uh, probably a team of about a dozen people who were working through the book. And my friend Joe and I argued about every single paragraph in the damn book. Uh, all of the, I, th I think most of the good things, the powerful things, you know, dare I even say the beautiful things in the book really are the result of these other people pushing my ideas into the right direction. It was it's great to be able to work with people like that. Nice. Thank you for sharing. And maybe let's, you know, take a step back because I think I understand that you're very involved with uh, definitely writing, music, even cooking, right? Based on the, yeah, yeah. the the things that you share on social media. But maybe let's take things back to an earlier time when you were a kid, right? When you're growing up. What were your growing up years like? I'm curious to learn. So I, w I was a bit of a strange child, which will come as no surprise to anybody who, who knows me. Uh, I grew up very much out in the country in the middle of America. And when when we moved, when my family moved out there, I was, I don't know, five or six maybe. And there were no houses within, I think the nearest house was almost a kilometer away. And so the consequence of this was that I grew up very much by myself. I grew up spending a lot of time in fields and forests and learning how to, uh, you know, like if there's ever a zombie apocalypse, I know what you can eat around here. I know how to find water. I know how to trap animals. And <laughs> yeah, so, so I have all of these. And now that I live in a big city, those are not necessarily super relevant life skills. But I did spend a lot of time outside. Uh, I was equally interested in music and science. And that's I think a little bit of a little bit of an unusual tension because we think of most people who are into music are just into the artistic side, but it was not it was not at all uh, clear to me whether I was going to end up studying music or science or go into the military. I had a had a pretty good offer from 
from several of the armed services. Well, this is actually interesting. Uh, so I was the um, I was the kind of kid in high school who didn't really go to school and didn't really apply myself. I got pretty good grades, but I never studied. I skipped school to watch cooking shows and painting shows and uh, just anything I'd rather do than be in school. And the um, we have something called the ASVAB, which is the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery or something like that. It's uh, basically a test of a lot of things, but mo that it was built around pattern recognition. And, you know, the kinds of things where, like, you show somebody, here are these pulleys and here are these ropes. And, you know, with if, if you pull this, like, which way is this wheel going to turn? Or the things where you have, like, you know, these shapes are colored this way. If you rotate it this way, what would it look like? And I took the test and I just, I completely blew it off. I just, you know, went through the test and just, like, you know, with, with intuition, just completely hands. Because, you know, why why can I be bothered to do it? And then I couldn't understand why the military recruiters were showing up at my school wanting to talk to me constantly. And, you know, it got me out of class. So, of course, I, I just did it, you know. And finally, uh, you know, one, one time I finally asked the guy, like, why are you here so much? Because, like, I'm not this into like driving a tank sounds like it might be kind of cool. I don't know, but like, you know, what, what, why are we talking so much? And he said, Oh, you don't know. Uh, I had maxed out that test. I got 100% perfect, which apparently people don't do. And I since then have discovered, I think this probably relates directly to trading. You know, I think we talk about um, there are lots of different kinds of intelligence and I don't think, I think the idea that intelligent people make better traders is false. I've seen some very, very intelligent people struggle at trading. I've also seen some very intelligent people be successful, but I've also seen people who by their own admission, you know, were like, uh, I, I was a very mediocre employee, very mediocre student. I'm not that smart, but they figured out the trading puzzle and they figured out how to do that. So it's not really about intelligence, but I do think that, you know, maybe one particular kind of, intelligence I'm gifted with is that visual pattern recognition. And I think that that has, you know, I have gravitated to a style of trading and, and maybe gravitating to new styles recently. So we can talk about that too, but I've gravitated to a style of trading that really focuses on pattern recognition and on, you know, I think when I teach people, one of the things that I can see that's a little bit different in my head, you know, I see a pattern and I, because I've seen so many freaking patterns over the years, I see all of the ways it can resolve. And uh, of course, you know, I mean, I can be surprised and I, I sometimes have emotional reactions when things don't go my way. But I think that I'm very aware when I see a pattern of this like almost intuitive, probabilistic way that this pattern is going to collapse down into realization. And I think I think there is some pattern recognition there that is not uh, not normal, maybe. And, and I'm curious. You mentioned that you, you aced the test; you got 100. percent So did they did they follow up with it? You know, hey, Adam here's an offer. You know, we would like you to you know join us. Blah blah blah. Is there anything along those lines? No, I, I I had lots of offers. Yeah, I had, but both the uh, both the army wanted to put me into put put me into a tank, and the uh, I, I was more interested in submarines. So I was talking to the Navy too, and I actually had a scholarship, one of just a handful in the state for uh, to join the Navy. And I put a suit on and went down to sign the paperwork to accept it. And on the way down there, I was like, 
you know, I think I really want to do music because I was also pursuing music very, very seriously to the point where I was practicing my instrument. I was writing pieces, but I, I was writing music. I was spending uh, as a teenager, probably an average of six hours a day working on my music every day on the, you know, just full, full time. And so that was obviously something that was very important to me. And I, I was literally standing there with a the pen in my hand and I said, I don't think I can sign this. And the guy was like, there are like five of these in the state. Like you got one of them. We'll just sign the paper. Like, I don't think I want to do this. And he's like, well, what do you, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to be a musician. He looked at me like it was the, stu- and it probably, it very likely was the stupidest thing he had ever had anybody say standing there. But uh, that was how, that was how my life ended up following the trajectory it did through college. And I went and studied music, piano, performance, and music composition. And uh, when I graduated from college, that was where that was when I started trading. I had no financial background, no exposure to financial markets or, um, you know, I, one of the things that I had learned about myself in college was I really don't like casinos. I really don't like to gamble. Um, and I know now, you know, the few times in my life that I had been dragged to a casino, even then, I think I had a very clear intuition that the edge was against me. And I, I, I walked in, in college, was, I don't remember where it was, but it's forced to go to some casino thing. And I just walked up to a table and I put my entire bankroll for the night down on a single bet and I lost. And I was like, that's, you know, to, to me, the process of playing was not fun. And I, I had intuited that when the odds are against you, the best thing you can do is play as few times as possible. And I happened to lose on that one. But, you know, I, I think there was probably some uh, intuition about probabilities and which, you know, I had no formal math education when I did start trading. And I realized because you know, my formal education was as a musician. So the math class that I had was basically what you might call math for poets. Like, you know, we we would learn about mathematical concepts and then kind of think about how they made us feel. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but uh, I had no real math training to the point that when I started trading and once I figured out that this was really a game of numbers and probabilities and, you know, I built all of this for myself from the ground up because I didn't know anything. And it's like, well, there has to be some way to like, keep track of what usually happens when these patterns happen, what tools do I need for that? So I taught myself statistics and elementary calculus sitting on my sofa at night with a textbook and a pencil and paper. And I took a couple of years to develop the math skills that I needed. Interestingly, I was always very interested in computer programming, but somehow I had managed to do that without actually nailing down any any knowledge in math whatsoever, I guess. Brilliant. So, so from what I'm hearing, it's your first foray into trading happened because you went to a casino and you placed all your money on that bet. And that's where you got started learning more about ancient yeah, stuff. No, not really. Uh, so I, I knew that I did not like to gamble, but uh, nobody in my, you know, my, my family was extremely conservative financially to the point where, and this is something that's pretty common with American families that, even several generations back, remember the Great Depression and remember struggle. And, you know, now that uh, decades of prosperity, 
there's still this feeling of you know, you could lose it. So, you know, I, I'm sure neither one of my parents ever had a penny in the stock market. And so I had, I had no exposure to that whatsoever. But when I graduated from college, I got a brochure in the mail from, I, I don't know if he's still in business. I think maybe he's on the run somewhere from tax evasion. I don't know. Uh, Ken Roberts, you know, the, the commodity guy with a cowboy hat. And he had this, um, I forget how what it was. It's maybe two hundred dollars or something. You bought this book where he would teach you. It was based on the cattle market, which ironically the grain or the the meats are markets that I've never been able to trade very well at all. Uh, I I now actually have a rule that says don't trade meats, and I've had that rule for twenty years. And a couple years ago, excuse me, we were experimenting with some new swing trading on some different time frames, And so I thought, oh, you know, I can, let's throw cattle and I mean, hogs in and let's see if it works. Because why should I be afraid of these markets? And sure enough, my win ratio was like, so now I, I still have that rule back. Don't trade, don't trade meats. But Ken's thing was based on um, pyramiding into the market. So you could start with a very small amount of money, a few hundred dollars, and buy a cattle contract that would go in your favor. You could buy two more, and then you could buy four, and you could buy six. And eventually, if the market went in a straight line, you could own tens of thousands of cattle contracts, and you could make millions of dollars starting from $100. And I knew, you know, I, I, I didn't know much, but I knew that it wasn't going to be like that, I, you know, but there's some, when you hear these, and I would say that kind of marketing is essentially scam marketing, but uh, the copy, whoever the copywriter was for that, it was, it was copy was brilliantly well-written. And there was some little part of me that was like, let's buy a lottery ticket and try it. But I also, you know, wanted to, wanted to see. So I got his stuff. I studied everything. I studied his charts and ironically, his trading approach was not the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It was based on what I call like a one, two, three bottom. So market has been downtrending and then makes a higher low and you look to buy it. Of course, you know, I mean, it's, I, I, I've traded like that sometimes. Like you, you actually, there are isolated cases where you can get useful information from that kind of pattern. So it wasn't totally crazy, but, um, and I opened, this was in 1995. I think I opened a $3,000 account. Now the brokers, uh, he was also working with brokers uh, who um, charge $100 a round turn. So for me to do a trade cost $100 and a $3,000 account. I, I, the, I didn't understand the numbers at all. And the charts, uh, every week I would get a chart book in the mailbox and there would be space where I would update the charts by hand through the week. And then another chart book would come out the next week. And so that, yeah, that was my first exposure to charting. And of course, you know, I don't have to tell you the story, but uh, I started trading and lost instantly. Like you just, just completely blew the account. Uh, but yeah, I would say I was trading on the daily chart. There were no real, uh, there were mid-end grain contracts, but uh, for most of the things, you're probably risking a thousand dollars a trade and you have a three thousand dollar account that math is not going to work out and you also have no idea what you're doing so that you know, that helps too um and i did that a few times and i refunded the account but there was something about this i was like 
okay, I'm, I obviously don't have any idea what I'm doing, but something about this I really, really like. There, there's, I, I, to this day, I can't explain what it was about that process of, you know, I wasn't watching charts because I didn't have a data feed, but it was something about seeing, oh, and I, you know, I guess I should also mention, I, being the kind of research-minded person I am, I went to the library and I got like old historical records and I was making charts by hand in the library of all of these commodities back into the thirties and forties and fifties. And I traded, I wasn't trading stocks. I was just trading futures. And so I did that a few times. And then I finally figured out that I had to learn something. I started, uh, started down the path of kind of figuring things out. I uh, bought my first charting program on a, uh, went to a computer store, a physical store and bought a charting program on, uh, I'm sure they weren't even DVDs, they were CD-ROMs. And uh, my early, you know, first data feeds were of course a modem connection, a dial-up modem. And I just happened to be, somehow I gravitated into day trading the British pound when the Asian financial crisis hit and I still had no idea what I was doing, but, um, what I was trading was basically what I do now, uh, looking for, looking for a pound to make a big move. And I was trading bull flags and bear flags and there was enough volatility in the market. And I was stupid enough to not be afraid of risk and to not understand the risk that I was taking that, uh, I made, what for me at the time was quite a bit of money. And that was, that was how I initially got started. It was, it was a combination of the, just some interest, you know, something in my gut was like, this is, this is a really cool thing that I like. And then I guess just enough, uh, just enough patience to, and luck, you know, certainly, certainly the, like, you know, everybody would like to believe as traders, luck plays no part of it, but uh, you know, it, I I was lucky to lose it first. My very first trade was, uh, I, I'm almost sure it was wheat, but it's been a long time. And the market had been gone practically parabolic. And I thought, well, you know, it's gone up so much. It's going to continue to go up. So I, my first trade was I bought the top of a parabolic move. And I think I was fortunate that I lost very, very consistently early on. And, you know, you, you don't know... It was a different world then because, you know, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't the kind of communication. You don't know who to listen to. And the broker would call and would say, oh, I've been talking to guys down on the floor and they know this market's going to do this. And at this point, I'd had an account that I, you know, basically blown. There were a few hundred dollars and left in. And he was like, well, conveniently, like you could buy a call. And he's like, you know, oddly, because, you know, obviously he just figured like, you know, how to get this guy to blow the rest of his account, do another <laughs> trade with us. And he's like, you know, I, I've, I've been talking to the guys down in the silver pit and they know, and he, you know, had all of these stories for why it was going to happen. And I said, you know, like my chart says it's going to go down. And he said, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Like it's, it, yeah, it looks really good to go down too. Let's buy a put. And that was that was all that was the moment where I realized nobody I was talking to actually knew more than I did, and I knew nothing, and it was kind of terrifying. And I began to uh, really understand the sales-driven nature of being a full-service broker at that time. And you know, I got lucky and figured it out, and 
ended up trading basically every market there is and it's 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 worked out so maybe let's bring forward to today right but before i ask the question i'm curious because earlier you mentioned that you were drawing charts by hand they mail you a chart book i'm not even sure what that is because <laughs> clearly <laughs> that's i've not, not done that but you draw the chart book i guess bar by bar as the candle closes each day am i right yeah yeah so so what it was uh is imagine like a magazine and because you know they would keep printing costs down so it'd be thin paper it'd be like newsprint paper or almost like tissue paper and you would have this chart book that would have the different months of you know like the beginning of it might be uh I don't remember what order. I know what order I would put it in today, but you know, like the beginning would be like you know S and P front month, and then maybe the next two months out, and it would be like that for every commodity. So you'd have, I don't know, probably eighty or ninety pages in the book, and they would be printed. They so obviously, you know, this is just a daily chart. Nobody's doing any multi time frame things. There <laughs> might have been a moving average or something on it. There was volume and open interest, but then they would leave space to the right of the chart. So that as each day closed, you could go and draw in the bar. And they weren't even using candles. They were bar charts. Do you feel that by doing the exercise, it kind of gives you, I don't know the word, intuition, a feel for the market since you're doing it by so. hand? I, I think so. And that's one of the exercises. I don't think that's the way to do it. I think the a better way to do it, I have a few blogs on, on the topic and I also wrote about it a little bit in the books too. Uh, I think it's a really good idea to keep some kind of swing chart. So you're doing something like, you know, kind of a, maybe a cheap point and figure chart, so something like that, where you decide on a reversal value and you're going to reverse the line. Uh, there's nothing wrong with drawing candles or bars on a period completion, but what what I think really did it for me was doing that for about a year. I charted the S&P. I was trading one and five minute charts and I kept the swing chart that I had all this graph paper that I eventually I had it like all around my office. And, you know, it was on top of each other. It was like snaking around the office. And, uh, but doing that, I, I don't know that there's any, you know, I think what it is, it makes you pay attention and, I, I don't know that there's any like magical learning that it it reorganizes your brain beyond the fact that it makes you pay attention for every single swing of the market. And it makes you, you know, think about, okay, so I draw this line here. What does it mean? What did it feel like to be involved in a trade? Um did I make right trades? Did I make wrong trades? What made me make those? So, you know, you're constantly asking questions. If you go through this, it's not just the matter of you're just drawing the line. On, and of course, you know, if you do it long enough, there are going to be some periods where you're just drawing the line on the chart just to kind of, you know, maintain the practice. But uh, I think one of the things that people really struggle with today is this quality of attention because you know neither one of neither you nor I has picked it up, but I bet your phone's right there, right? And, <laughs> and if, if we if we weren't if we weren't on a call, yeah, if we weren't on a call, we would have been you know browsing Instagram or you know some other some feed like that. So our attention today is just so fragmented in a way that it really works against people doing, um, I forget who, who used the phrase deep work. There's an author. It's not Please mine. Tell you what, yeah. I think you're right. You're right. Uh, I think that, that, uh, you know, this idea of doing deep work, which I think is where the kinds of change that you need to provoke in your brain happen. 
it's just not normal for people. It's not natural. You have to force yourself into it. And that's why I think that is such a powerful exercise for doing that. Okay. And let's say we fast forward to today, right? So what's your trading methodology like right now, your trading style? So I'm still doing basically, I would like to tell you that my trading hasn't changed at all. So, and this, this is the, uh, let me ask you, what are you doing? Are you primarily systematic? What are you doing? I do Are both, you... actually. I run okay. uh, trading systems as well as having a discretionary price action on a separate account. Okay. So my uh, you know, my focus has been almost entirely discretionary, which is funny because I do an incredible amount of systematic work and um, you know, statistical work to support what I do. Also, my trading is 100% technical. And again, it's funny because I do a lot of macro work. I do a lot of fundamental work. And uh, when I started really doing this work in about 2005, 2006, I was learning all the fundamentals and you know how everything's supposed to work. And then by that point, it was getting to no, yeah, it was about 2005. It was a little bit harder to fool me because by that time I had developed backtesting skills and statistical skills. So, you know, I was able to do things like, okay, so you tell me uh, low debt on a balance sheet is a good thing. You want to look for companies that have low debt. Uh, so let's just see what would happen historically if we bought companies with low debt on their balance sheet. So I was able to, looking at this fundamental stuff to, pretty quickly see it doesn't work how people think it works. And the, the, I remember walking home, I was in New York at the time. I remember walking from the subway, just thinking about the work that I was doing. And uh, I had found some glimmers of fundamental edges, but then it hit me that all of these edges that I found were at multi-month time horizons. And I have always been a trader. I've always been a short-term trader. When I was focusing on day trading, I traded a five-minute chart. I traded a two-minute chart. Um, when I trade on the daily chart, I the way I think of it is, you know, I want to be in a trade for a few days to a few weeks. I'm not looking to hold something. Now, I also do long-term investing where, you know, I am holding things for years, hopefully. But uh, as far as my active trading, so... I, I want that shorter time frame, and I realized that all of this fundamental work, I couldn't find much of it that worked very well, but all of it that worked, worked at time horizons that were not very interesting to me. And it was like, you know, I was walking home like 1030 at night through Times Square, and it was like, you know, the heavens opened and angels sang to me in a light, and that, that was the moment where I knew, okay, I don't have to look at this fundamental stuff. It's not, it's not really going to be part of my process. So I would like to tell you that my trading is basically the same as what I wrote in the book, but I know as a discretionary trader, you know, systems need to be tweaked and nuanced along the way. And I know that as a discretionary trader, I don't always know when I'm making those adjustments. And I know that I've made those adjustments. Uh, some of those adjustments are over the years, my stops are a little bit tighter. My profit targets are a little bit smaller. Uh, I don't try to hit, I've never really tried to hit home runs. Uh, I tell the story sometimes I had a Euro trade where 
on part of the trade, I got like, I don't know, 32R on part of the trade, just an incredible trade. However, you know, it was a very small piece of the trade and it was so much work to manage it. And the fact that I still remember it and it wasn't that much money and we're talking about it means that it's probably more of an emotional thing than a practical trading thing. So, you know, I tend to be a very, uh, you know, like a trade is just a trade, just take the pattern and, you know, sit, see if it works out. I uh, trade primarily consolidation patterns. I look for market to make a big move and then assess the character of that consolidation, look for a move in the other direction. I'm trading a little bit more around levels and on trend lines, but looking for reversals. Uh, the problem, of course, with that is by the time you have the reversal, you've already given up so much of the move that, you know, you're, but, but again, you know, what I'm trying to do is just look for a market that's rather than thinking it's not, my goal is not to be able to put up a chart and say, oh, look, I sold up here and I bought down here and I got the whole swing. Rather, you know, I understand that my job is to look for a market that's making a clean move and just take a bite out of it. And so if you think about it like that, it's not really a problem that you've had the reversal and you've given up some of the move if there's you know enough of an edge. Um, I have decided to, and this is something that's still kind of in the process of, uh, being done. So I went back to day trading about a year ago and I did that with uh, incredible, I mean, if you're going to do it, it takes incredible, complete focus. And I remembered why I didn't want to do it because, you know, I, I don't want to live my life staring at every tick of the screen. And so uh, after doing that for most of a year and then, uh, just realizing, you know, there are good reasons that I chose not to do that. I think my next act is that I'm going to start deploying some more systematic and algorithmic approaches, which, you know, I've, I've traded systematically in the past. I've traded systems and massaged them from a discretionary standpoint. I've traded systems on very small size, but I've never been a trader. I would never have branded myself as a systematic trader. And, you know, when I think about, when I think ahead to the next 20 years of my trading career, and also, you know, you get older, you don't, you don't get smarter, you don't get faster as you get older. So, you know, the idea of being a 70 year old day trader and pounding away, uh, you know, that, that's, just, that's just not realistic. So I suspect more and more of my trading will become systematic and that's where I am today. So, I know that yeah, for the longest time you were a discretionary trader who yeah makes your decisions based on statistics. So I'm curious at that point of time when you were a discretionary trader, why didn't you choose to go with the systematic approach, even though you really had the background you know in doing systematic yeah, work? You know, I there, there's I think it's hard it's hard to really understand our full motivations for anything. But I'll tell you some of the things that were kicking around in my head. Uh, one thing was that. I had this idea, and I still think it's true. Um, when I was starting to figure out trading and had some success, and then uh, you know, I also tell you every single time I switched markets or time frames or you know asset classes, I I struggled. It, it, it was like a pretty massive relearning. I would love to tell you that if you uh, you know if you can 
do one kind of trading well, you can just do another kind of trade. It certainly wasn't my experience. I had the skills to learn, but I had to relearn. And I was fortunate to be able to interact with some of the grand old names of technical analysis who were still active in the 1990s. And I was very confused because everything you would read would talk about the advantages of systematic trading. And of course, this was a few decades back when the turtles were still showing pretty good performance. And we were closer to that, that legendary event. And it was still very mysterious. You know, people didn't know exactly what they were doing. So there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of stuff about systematic trading. There were also neural nets, which I think is, you know, variation of the, uh, a much more primitive version of the AI that we're seeing today. And everybody was convinced the neural nets were going to take over and they didn't. And I don't think AI will now, but um, I was surprised to see that my discretionary trading was pretty consistently better than my systematic trading. And it baffled me because everything I read said that systematic trading was better and I wanted to do that. But when I talked to these old systematic people, the answer I got back was some variation of, well, of course, like, a good discretionary trader is going to do better than a system, but there just aren't that many of them. And it's really hard to do. And if you can do it today, there's no guarantee you can do it next year. All of that's absolutely true. So part of it was this idea that I could do better as a discretionary trader than a systematic trader. Uh, part of it was maybe also just a little bit of arrogance, you know, like if you, uh, you know, I certainly understand that from a systematic perspective, like you built that system, there's a lot of work there, but it's a little bit more of a cowboy thing, you know, to go in and like, you see the pattern and you make the trade. And uh, there, there's, there's a feeling of like, I did this with my own hands. And I think that that, that was very appealing to me. And uh, maybe also just some inertia, you know, you want, once you trading, I think is, Long-term trade. Careful with what I'm saying here. Having a long trading career, not long-term trading on a long time frame, but having a long trading career, I think, is really a delicate balance between consistency and innovation. And there definitely is, you know, I mean, I've I've looked at some very very strange ideas. I've looked at some ideas that are so strange we can't talk about them. Uh, but I also, it, when it comes to what I actually deploy. I'm pretty conservative. I'm going to I'm going to deploy things that have worked for me in the past and things that I'm comfortable with. So I think it was probably just a little bit of inertia, you know, is, is what I what I know. Even what you've just said, and then as we can, as, as you've said earlier, in recent times you're starting or considering to make the shift to systematic trading. So, what prompted that? You know, this transition that's in your head. Thinking about it's a. It's a different workflow. You know, I think the, if somebody says, oh, you do both, so you know, somebody says, uh, you know, what's more difficult, systematic or discretionary? Well, they're difficult in different ways. You put the work in different places. And I think, you know, if you are a, it's quite difficult for me to, you know, just in the interest of full confession, it's difficult for me to trade and do anything else. Even if I'm trading on a fairly long time frame, say I'm trading four-hour charts. If I if I if I have a bunch of trades on a four-hour chart or potential trades, and I'm trying to make a course or write a chapter of a book, it's very difficult for me to do. The market takes my focus in ways that uh, 
I can't really multitask. I think multitasking is largely a lie anyway, but that's a, that's a separate discussion. Uh, so what is attractive to me is the idea of being able to put my systematic work in like mad scientist mode and do the development and then be able to step into a you know very arm's length risk manager role while the system actually runs so you know it's not it's not a desire to spend less time trading but it's a desire to be able to put that time into different spaces which will then into you know different slices of the day or week which will then let me do other things that I want lifestyle and I, you know, I've I've tried to do this several times, but as I've said, uh, you know, inertia is a powerful force, and also the conservatism of you know knowing what you know. I, I I'm not an expert in how anybody should trade, but I'm an expert in how I should trade. I know I know what works for me, and the idea of changing that in a uh, very significant way. It's going to take some work, but, uh, you know, I, I can do it and I like the challenge and I like doing, uh, kind of crazy big things. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the challenge, but, uh, you know, just being fully open about knowing that it, it is going to be a challenge. Okay. So maybe we can talk more about systematic trading in a future episode, right? When things are sure. a little bit more finalized for you. But for today, let's keep yeah. it to discretionary trading since, you know, that's where your wealth of experience has been at, right? Over the last 10, 20 years. Yeah. So sure. I think in your book, right, you mentioned, if I'm not wrong, four particular trading patterns, you know, with the failure test, the trend continuation, the complex pullback and the NT pattern, right? So I think maybe uh, I'd like to, you know, go through this. I think in the book, you covered it pretty well, but sometimes during podcast conversations, we can dive sure. a little, little bit deeper, certain nuances that we might not have, you know, read in the book. So sure. let's go with maybe the, the failure test first. I think that's a very uh, prominent pattern that uh, you have, you know, spoke about in the book. So maybe for the audience who are listening, you can just give them a explanation of what the failure test pattern is about before we, you know, sure. we dig in deeper. So I'll also tell you that I have been doing a series of pretty extensive talks like uh, some of them one of them was almost four hours on each the chapter Hudson sessions yes, I get Hudson it, right? sessions. you did i've yes. been paying attention uh, yes okay so uh and i do talk about these with those slide decks have hundreds of charts hundreds of examples and i talk about uh how my thinking has changed in some minor ways on these but in reality my thinking, the market hasn't changed. And my thinking about these patterns is not radically different. The, so the failure test is a good place to start. The failure test is, uh, people also might know this as like Trader VIX 2B trade. You have a market that has defined a clear resistance level. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's kind of requirement number one it can't just be some random level that you pull out of the middle of some previous candlestick or some of the stupid things that you see gurus do on youtube you know there's pulling levels out of it. like that's not a that's not a level the market sees it has to be a level the market sees and what you want what you want to have happen there is the market trades up through that level and then reverses back down below so what you have shown what the market has shown us is that there's really no interest in buying above that level we went up there the bulls had a chance they failed hence the name of the pattern and there are different ways this can show up on a chart 
but that indicates a minor exhaustion above that level. And it's a really good spot to, it's a really good spot to initiate a trade. You know your risk, um, you know, uh, if you're right, the pattern accelerates in a very gratifying way, pretty, you know, pretty quickly. And so it's not a kind of trade where you get into it and you have to sit there and wait and wonder if that happens, the trade's probably wrong. So it's, it's a good trade. Uh, it's the first trade. It's the first pattern I put in the book, which is probably why you started there. Uh, I don't know that I would suggest that beginning traders start with it because, um, then, you know, you, obviously I thought at one time that they should, maybe, maybe I was right, but I think the danger of the failure test is they're really two things. They're not all that common. So you'll find yourself looking, uh, trying to force the trade. This is how you'll get into using those, you know, kinds of suboptimal levels. Um, great way to do it might be if you were day trading, like just use the high and the low of the day. So you have some for, for whatever market you're trading. So you have uh, you have a clear level, the market's already shown, everybody knows when we go to a new high, if you go to a new high and fail, it probably says something. Um, the other problem with it though, is that it locks traders into a counter trend mode because that market was prob market probably was going up to make that new high. So we probably had some kind of uptrend. Now, of course, trends end, and there's certainly good trades to be made around the ends of trends. But I see with developing traders, there's this, uh, people get so cynical, and I'm the most cynical person on the planet, so I understand. But they'll see any price move and they'll think it's wrong or they'll just have a desire. You know, the market's, uh, market's going up, so they're just shorting into it. And you can trade like that, but it's probably most traders when they begin would probably do better to orient themselves toward aligning with whoever's winning in the market. So I think that I think there's a little bit of concern with that. But having said that, it's a, it's a great pattern. I just tweeted yesterday a pattern uh, where this happened at the bottom. So what's really nice is when these line up with other patterns. So we had a case where the market made a pretty big move on an intraday chart and then made a flag and there was a failure test at the bottom of the flag so that's a really nice trade but that's a trade that benefits from like these kind of you know multiple layers of interactions that feed into the pattern so i heard you say that you know to trade this pattern one of the key things to look for is to make sure it's of a appropriate level right because you, you don't want to just trade off any Tom Dick Harry level. And then right. for day traders, you talk about the intraday highs and lows. So what about someone right. who, let's say, trade off the patterns on a four-hour or daily time frame? What are the kind of levels that they should be looking at? I'm probably thinking of 52-week high, 52-week low, et cetera, but well, still would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Uh, it, w one level that I suspect we're going to be talking about very soon in U.S. stock indexes is all-time highs. You know, a, a failure test at an all-time high is a real... It's if it's not a signal to get short to you, it's at least a signal to ring the register on some longs that hopefully you've had for a while. So uh, it has to be really obvious. And it's the kind of, uh, you know, it, it should not be a level that you have to explain to somebody. If you, if you imagine somebody who has just been trading for two days and they just learned the basics of reading charts and you, you give that person a chart and you say, point out the important levels, they should be able to do that, right? It, it, it should be that incredibly obvious. So, you know, it'd just be like significant highs and lows. Um, imagine 
an extended trend. A really nice thing is if you get like a little double tap of a top or a bottom or something where, you know, maybe you have a parabolic move and then the market comes off and then goes back up and fails above that. So you have those kinds of, you know, variations of double tops. Those are, those can be good. It just needs to be a really, really obvious level. Okay. And maybe just to push back a little bit. So obvious levels, like let's say, for example, uh, a five minutes time frame, that, that level can be really obvious. But when someone goes to, let's say, the 30 minutes or the one hour, that might not be a very yeah. obvious level already. So I think there's, there's a little That's bit a of a, a disconnect there. So I, I, I'm pretty sure you have the, an answer for it. So I would love to hear, you know, what, what's your, your take on that? The you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you can pull up a a very obvious five minute level is invisible in the 30 minute chart, perhaps, right? Uh, it's just in the middle of the bar, it never happened. But here's the thing, what time frame are you trading on? So you're going to put that trade on based on the five minute chart, you're going to manage it based on the five minute chart. And so I think a lot of a lot of the complex multiple time frame analysis is useful. But it's also potentially confusing. It's something that, uh, you know, I find I don't actually do that much explicit multiple time frame work now. I can pretty much look at a single chart and have a, have a pretty good idea what's going on on the other time frames. Uh, my day trading, I do, I do explicitly use multiple time frame charts. But uh, the, the way to untangle all of that is just to make sure that your analysis is on the time frame you're going to trade and that you're not taking information from another time frame. Got it. And also, I think just to backtrack a little bit, you mentioned a little bit about the uh, how there is a, was it a bear flag pattern that was formed on an intraday basis followed by a failure test. So correct me if I'm wrong. So I'm imagining, imagine that there's a downtrend, a bear flag has formed. And then the price tried to break down lower, testing the lows of the bear flag, and we got a failure test. Was that what you were saying earlier? So it was a it was a bull flag. So oh, sorry, bull flag. Okay, it, you know, it was a bull flag, and it was a it was a complex flag. So it came down and made two touches at the bottom, and that second touch of the uh, where you know where it touched that previous pivot. So the market goes up and then comes down, makes a flag, tries to rally. Now it's left a pivot down there. And then when the market came back down to that level, it made a failure test with very good momentum. So that that was a good buying sign. It was a you know it was a buying failure test. It was at the bottom of a bull flag, and then that led to well, I mean that led to it's people won't know when they hear this in the future, but we just had a gigantic historic rally day in the U.S. stock market, and that failure test off of the bottom of that little five minute flag was an entry that set you up for this entire big move. Got it. And that sounds a bit similar to the complex pullback pattern, which I think you covered in your in your work. Yes, previously. it is. It is. Uh, not every complex pullback will have a little failure test at the bottom, but when you get it, it's a really nice trade. Awesome. And so maybe just a couple of more questions on the failure test. So, you know, failure tests, you know, it, it, they are... A few things to look for while we talk about you know finding the right level what about looking at how the price approach your level because there are many ways a price can approach a level right sometimes oh, yeah. you know strong momentum yeah. big candles into it and some could be just very choppy stare higher highs higher lows into a level is that up for consideration as well yeah i mean i i think it's a little bit difficult to teach but one of the things that maybe the biggest thing that i am aware of is kind of the character of the market and how the market is moving 
And that's something that in these, you know, when I have a captive audience for multiple hours in the Hudson sessions, I talk a lot about what I see in character and I try to quantify it. One of my frustrations with the way a lot of the stuff is taught is it is difficult. It is complex, but it's sometimes it's left so that it's so complicated, like, oh, I, I can't explain it to you. You know, it's like, it's just something I see. And, you know, if you sit in front of the screen for eight years, maybe you'll start. That's not a very good way to teach it. And it's not realistic. But uh, what it really is, it's a lot of little pieces of information. And all of these pieces of information kind of have to be balanced against each other. And you do have to build your own way of thinking about the market, looking at the market, the way you understand the market, the way you see the market will be, you know, like you've told me that you absorbed a lot of my stuff and a lot of my stuff helped you a lot. But I guarantee if you and I look at a chart, we're going to come to different conclusions a lot of times. And by the way, we might make different trades. We might both make money on the trader. We might both lose money, but you as a discretionary trader, you have to internalize this. A lot of it is, you know, I'll assess the character of the market as it's moving up to that level. For instance, what I don't want to see is, let's go back to that example where we had a parabolic move up. And then let's say we're looking for a failure test back up at that old level. So what I, what I don't want to see is the market like grinds back up there and then goes flat right below the level. That's a setup for a really good breakout trade. So I'm going to tell you that if I see that, I'm probably not that interested in a failure test. However, you know, now if it does make a failure test and then reverses, if the character of that move, the character of that move could be such that I completely reverse what I told you eight seconds ago. And I say, oh, that is a good failure test because, you know, it, it was good consolidation, good setup for breakout. It really failed. Let's take the trade to the other side. So it's very, very difficult. I would say impossible to give you an exact set of rules. But what I think I can do over showing you, you know, many, many examples and talking about the elements, you can start to see how I'm putting the puzzle together and figure out how to put it together for yourself. Yep. Uh, those are really insightful. So thank you for that. And one last question about the failure test. So at failure test, we have all sorts of sizes of the candle. Some can have a huge candle, which is you know, maybe three ATR, you know, and some maybe a really small, which is just 0 0.5 ATR. Well, yeah. what's your take on that in terms of uh, the size of the failure test? Yeah, it matters a lot. But, you know, one of the things that, uh, and this is one of the ways that my thinking has evolved since the book, and uh, you can Google my name and then reversal complex, the phrase reversal complex. So uh, sometimes those failure tests can evolve over a couple bars. So you might, for instance, have a fairly big bar that closes above the level and it looks like a good breakout. And then you have a reversal back down the level. So you have this like white and black or you know green and red, whatever colors you start. You have that pair of candles. And in this case, if they're both a little bit bigger than, you know, say maybe bigger than 1.5 ATR or something, uh, you know, those would probably be better signals. So I think some you do want to see what you really don't want to see is that you have this failure test and it goes like 0.5 ATR above the level and then close this just right. That's not it. You know, that's, you, there, there was no 
people didn't get hurt there. You, you, you want to see a level where traders made mistakes, traders got hurt. You want to see volatility that's going to be reflected in. I don't need to look at volume. It's going to be reflected in the range of the bar. So you're absolutely correct. You're going to see bars that are, I would say, at least an ATR and in reality, probably bigger, probably more like one and a half. On the other hand, you know, if you have this gigantic reversal, the move might already be done. If you have like an eight ATR bar, well, you know, you're, it's more likely than to mean revert back up toward that. So there's definitely with, you know, if, if, if we just tell people, go look for big bars, somebody's going to find that gigantic bar and they're going to sell the bottom and it snaps back. And they say, these guys are idiots. They lied to us. But it's all, you know, all of this stuff, there's kind of a sweet spot in the middle where it's not too much of one thing or too much of another thing. It's a good question. These are really good questions. <laughs> Happy to hear that. Okay, let's move on to the second pattern. I think trend continuation, right? Flag patterns is, uh, yeah. I, I, I would say it's one of your favorite pace. I know following you for, for a while now. It is, yeah. So I think for some of those listening or watching this video right now, they may, have not, may not have a good idea. Well, what is exactly a trend continuation pattern? Yeah, I'll, so I'll let you explain on that. So a trend continuation pattern is just a pattern that uh, you have a market that is trending. So it can be an established trend or it could also be a market that has been sideways and then makes an upside breakout. And what you're looking for with a trend continuation pattern is some kind of pause that tells you that market the market's likely to continue. This can be these go by a lot of names. People talk about flags and pennants and wedges and rectangles and you know the uh, classical charting people, which I you know I, I really kind of have issues with that approach. But they have a lot of different variations. I don't think it matters. I don't don't think. It matters what you call them, what they look like. Uh, the and I used to think it did. You know, I, I, I would used to I used to tell people, you got to look for the best patterns, and you've you've heard that you've heard that thousands of times over the years. Uh, and so, what's the best pattern? Well, you know, we can think about what that is, but it's probably a pattern that's kind of symmetrical, like it's pretty on the chart, and. So I sat down one night because I had bizarre hobbies, and I was like, okay, so. This pretty pattern thing, like your A plus trade setups, uh, how big is that edge? That 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 was that was what I sat down to figure out. Like you know, just just exactly how much better are the really good looking patterns than the others? So I went through. I don't remember a decent number of trades, eight eight hundred, maybe a thousand, and separated them according to the visual quality of the setup pattern. And I discovered there was no difference whatsoever. No, no, it added nothing. So the, now obviously there's some, uh, you know, there's some point where the pattern becomes not a pattern, right? So like if we're looking at a pullback and I might say, oh, it's a flag, it's a, it's a bull flag, it's a bull flag. And now it's not. At some point the pattern integrity is broken. And that's a little bit of a judgment call. You and I might have different spots where, where we would make that decision. But what I have discovered is that as long as the pattern fulfills my requirements for what the pattern should be, it's an A plus trait. And it doesn't matter how good it looks on the chart. Uh, it might matter if I want to like, you know, take a picture of it and it, you know, I could be a little cynical here and say, if I want to take a picture and tweet it or like show people write a blog about it. In reality, there's probably something to that because those pretty patterns encapsulate the ideals of the pattern. You know, it's like the platonic ideal of the thing. Like, you know, here's the, here's the perfect pattern we should be looking for. But, you know, it's also important to realize that this can end up in 
a lot of distorted manifestations in the market, and those patterns are still absolutely valid. So, so when you treat trend continuation patterns, let's, as you said, there are multiple variations. One could be the, the bull flag pattern. One could be a, sort of like a quote-unquote failure test at the lows of a bull flag. And one could be just trading the breakout of the bull flag. So maybe you could walk me through a few scenarios of such a trend continuation patterns and, and how would you treat these different variations? So it could even be, um, could even be a single bar. You know, we just had a, we just had a very good example uh, I think I know what date it is, but just to put, so this is Tuesday, November 14th, 2023. If you go back and look at the S&P futures, the 24-hour futures, and you look at the previous day, you will see that the previous day's bar was a very small bar near the top of a relatively big bar of the day before that. So in that case, that single tight bar near the high of a previous big bar was enough of a consolidation pattern. And of course, you know, we can get into all kinds of multiple time frame stuff. If you go down, look at a four hour chart, it was a clear bull flag. And so, yeah, there's, there, there are all these different ways to see the patterns. But what I want to, what I want to know, first of all, is I want to be reasonably sure within the range of, and of course, we're not sure about anything. And I will qualify everything I say over and over and over again. So I'll try not to do that. But uh, I want to be reasonably sure that the trend is not likely to end, which is not the same as saying that it's going to continue forever. But, uh, you know, I'll look for patterns like exhaustion or, you know, one thing I'm a little concerned sometimes if a trend is mature, if we've had like eight really nice trend legs, well, is this really, you know, is this what we should be thinking about? Um, if the market has been downtrending and then makes really good momentum to the upside, I need to be sure that that momentum breaks that downtrending pattern. And now I can maybe look to trade trend continuation to the upside. So that's the first thing I want to know. I want to know that there's some reason for thinking, I'm going to try to say it again, so I don't think I said it very well, some reason to think that the trend should continue. And this is going to be primarily good momentum in the direction I intend to trade. So if I'm buying, I'm looking for a market to make a big move up. And I'm not going to feel like I missed that move. I'm looking to short. I'm going to look for the market to have a big sell-off. And that's number one. Number two is I want to be reasonably sure there's no reason that move should fail. So if it is up against a really clear level where we had a former exhaust, I'm talking about with a failure test, I might be a little bit, I won't say afraid, a little bit concerned about that trade. So um, if I have those two things, then what I do as I switch into the mode of watching the consolidation and assessing the character of the consolidation. And that's very, very important. I want to see that the, uh, so the markets made that, let's talk about a long trade markets made this big move up. I want to see that it doesn't sell off that much. If it makes a big move up and then spikes right back down. Okay. Well, that was fun. And there was, there was no trade there, nothing to do. If instead, you know, I'll characterize it as a reluctant pullback. That's how I'll tell, you know, the, traders that I work with will look for a market to make a reluctant pullback. Um, and, you know, it can just be a single bar. It can take multiple bars. It can take 20 bars. And there's a little bit of a, uh, you know, assessment of that at every point. And then what I look to do is to enter when the momentum turns in the direction of the trend. Almost always. There are some times where I might position because what trend are we talking about, right? You know, this is what's confusing. You talk about trend. Well, you have a market that's made a move up 
and then it starts to make a pullback, what's the trend? At this moment, there is a little bit of a downtrend, right? But it's a downtrend within that context of the uptrend, and we think the uptrend is going to continue. So there are times where I might buy, and not very often, but I might buy into that declining trend, at least a partial position. And one of the reasons is that I can read the market a lot better if I have on a very, very small position. Just having PL fluctuate, having some involvement engages a different part of my brain that is more effective than just looking at a chart. And you know, there are times that I'll buy into it. I was like, this doesn't feel right now. You know, I'll get out right away. But I look to enter when the market turns back in the trend direction. And I'm pretty good at using trailing stops. Uh, look to tighten my stops pretty aggressively, but you can't, you know, there again, it's a sweet spot. You can't be too aggressive because you do have to give the market some room to move. If you tighten too quickly, what you'll end up doing is accumulating a constant string of very small losses, which add up to a big loss. Okay. Yeah, we can talk about trailing stops later on. So you also mentioned that you like to buy when momentum is present, meaning the trend is about to resume itself. So I think a couple of ways you can do it. Number one is maybe when the price breaks above the the, the bull flag, that downward trend line, which I think someone just draw. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Another one might be break out of the, the pivot high, the swing high. That's another the option. I'm not so crazy about that one because I a lot of times I'm looking to actually take partial profits there. That's There are times I will do that and there can be a kind of consolidation that's like flat up against that. But generally speaking, I want to buy a little bit lower in the flag. So, you know, maybe a breakout of a previous bar. It's great if, you know, like, again, you can't choose the gifts you get. But when the market gives you like two inside bars, taking a breakout of that next bar in the trend direction can be good. And also, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes you get the best breakout level and then that breakout fails. And you have to kind of decide if you want to reset and try the trade again. But generally speaking, I would not look to buy the previous pivot high. Okay, so it's more of breaking out of the previous bar high or maybe a mini yeah. downward trend line that someone can draw for the right. reflect pattern. Okay, so when it comes to entry, there are a couple of ways. You can wait for the candle to close or you can right. use the buy stop order, which is usually your preferred method. Usually the buy stop order. Um, I've done it both ways and I traded, um, I traded an approach that worked for many years, worked pretty well that was based on executing on the close. And what I would practically do is not execute on the close, but I would try to execute on the next open. That was not, I wasn't trading such tight consolidation patterns. What happens a lot of times if you wait for the close of the bar, enough of the move has happened that the trade is already over. So you're, you can make a trade, but it's, it's a different trade. It's, it's not really the trade that I'm looking to make. So I'll generally enter on a, on a stop order. Or sometimes I'll have alerts set and do manual execution. And earlier you also mentioned that sometimes you enter on a pullback, right? Like for example, you give the example of a failure test at the lows of the flag pattern. What yeah. about moving average? Do you like maybe wait for a pullback towards a moving average, like the 20 period moving average? I mean, the, pro the problem, so I do have on all my charts, I have a moving average in Keltner channels and I've changed the setting on those a little bit over the years, but it, it doesn't matter. It's just, you know, a little, little bit of variation, I think, to keep my eye fresh. Uh, there's just no statistical edge to a moving average. And I know that people publish a lot of work showing the opposite, but I mean, face it, if, if, if it worked, you'd just run a system that was like buying at the 19 day moving average or whatever and be done with it. Like, you know, you wouldn't need, you wouldn't need to do system development. Uh, so 
I am aware of a moving average as a, you know, it, it does show that the market has retreated from an extreme. So I won't tell you that I never buy when the market comes to a moving average, but uh, I don't think I actually, I, I, I don't know. I don't think I've ever executed at a moving average any time in the last 15 years. So, okay, maybe I can tell you I, I do that, but I'm aware, I, I'm, I'm aware when we come into the moving average that we come back to the moving average, but I'm also very, very aware from my statistical work that I have to be careful to qualify that and say, hey, there's no edge to this. Like if I make this trade right on the moving average, that's not a trade. There's there's no statistical edge there. Okay. So let's move on now to the, the third pattern, right? The complex pullback. We talked about that a, a few times earlier. So I think it'd be great if you just give a brief explanation of what this pattern is. Before so that, dive that's deeper. probably a pullback where you lost money already. So what, happened, <laughs> what happens is the market goes up and makes the pullback and then turns to the upside enough usually to get people like me to buy the market and then the market turns back down and many times we'll make a lower low. And there are many times that you'll be stopped out of that. Uh, now these do tend to occur. There's some degree of probability here that if the mark, if there's an urgency to the market, so say you just had a, a big breakout, uh, uh, or a big trend reversal and then new upside momentum, you will tend to not see complex pullbacks there. You'll tend to see simple pullbacks. But if a market has you know been in a more mature trending phase, or if it's done a kind of a parabolic move, a little bit of a parabolic move, then a lot of times you'll need a complex pullback to kind of absorb that. So in those moves, what I'll do, I won't take the simple pullback because I'll think, I I, I know the game here. I'm not going to participate in, in this game where I lose money. Um, and of course, sometimes you'll do that in the market. You'll, you'll say, I'm not going to take the trade and the market just explodes. And you can't be bothered by that because you, one of the, you know, one of the aspects of this, I think that's so important is in why thinking and probabilities is so important because you just realize you can't be, you literally cannot be right all the time. And I think a lot of traders beat themselves up for trading mistakes that were actually not mistakes. You know, I, I've seen people do elaborate trade review of things that were just not their mistake. Like, you know, you, you, it was just simply a losing trade. Why are you why, why are you agonizing over it and figuring out how to avoid it in the future? It also works the other way. You know, you had a big winning trade and you just got lucky. So the idea of figuring out how to do more of those trades might not necessarily be the right thing to do. But uh, the complex pullback is, you know, I think I hinted at this before. I said with the failure test, you want to look for enough volatility to show that people got confused or people, traders got hurt. And it's kind of the same thing in the complex pullback. You want to see the market made an attempt to resume the trend. That attempt failed. A lot of people are probably just disgusted and walked away. And that sets the stage for FOMO when the market turns back to the upside. All those people who were kicking their you know waste paper basket a minute ago, now they got to get back in the market and because I already knew how the pattern was going to work, I am already long and now I can sell it to them when they start to get itchy fingers on their mouths. So when you say that you are already long, which part of the complex pullback will you be looking for your long entry? 
Uh, it's great if you can get a failure test at the bottom. It does not happen that often. I, you, I, I don't think you can. I, I don't think you could build a trading career around just that idea. It's one of the best trades out there, but it's quite rare. Um, what I'll what I'll do is so you you have this first move up, and then you have the failure. So you got to watch that failure. What happens on the failure if it fails and then it accelerates to the downside. The bears really start winning. Well, okay, so there's pro there's probably no trade there. But if it goes down and then kind of stabilizes, then I'll start to look for ways to get into the trade. And I'll say, you know, maybe we'll get some volatility compression, an inside bar or something, or you know, some kind of little double top in within the pattern that we could then take a break out of that. So you know, I'm looking to enter with the momentum to the upside. I really am not interested in, uh, you know, I'll rarely do it, but I'm, I'm not really interested in just buying that second leg and hoping for the pullback to work. I want the market to, I want the market to show me something. I, I want to see that there are bulls interested in this market. And so the, the way, the way that shows up is the market makes a move. And that means that I'm not entering at the best price anymore. You know, I'm not entering right down at the bottom. Uh, I think one of the things that a lot of traders struggle with is they want to use really, really tight stops. And you know, I guess you can do that. I, I knew a trader who I didn't think it would work, but uh, he had traded a fund tens of millions of dollars as a small commodity fund, but uh, his whole his win ratio was something like eleven percent. Which, which is horrifying, but what he would do is he would basically get into a trade and just give it no room whatsoever. If it, if it didn't work, he would get out. And on the ones that worked, he was pretty good at trailing a stop and that, that worked out for him. Now, the problem with that approach is, uh, you know, with the way I trade, which, you know, winning you know, a little bit more than 50% of the time. It's not like 80%, but it's not 30. Um, I don't really have to take every trade. That's one of the other lies that, you know, people tell you, oh, you got to take every single trade because it could be that one trade that makes your year. Well, you know, I mean, I, I gravitate toward and I strive for consistency. So no one trade is going to make my year, but one trade could, can I, can I swear here? Like, what are the rules? To, they, they okay, because okay, be I, I, I generally have a pretty foul mouth. Uh, a year in a professional kitchen and then on a, some trading floors will do that for you. But, you know, I do know that, but, but I, I try to restrain myself because I never know who's listening. Um, one trade, while one trade cannot make my year, one trade can fuck up my year very badly. So, you know, I always know that the no matter how long I have done this, no matter what I've done right, no matter how much money I've made, I could really destroy myself with a single trade if I got stupid. So uh, that answers a lot of the discipline problems. <laughs> just, just knowing that you have this sword hanging over your head by a hair, uh, it, it, it keeps you from getting stupid. But what he had to do, because he his win ratio was so low and his wins were so important. He did have to take every single trade and the end of his story. I don't actually know what happened with this training, but he had a few cases where he missed two trades that really would have made his, either one of them would have made his entire year. And this set off a chain reaction of psychological issues. So I do think there's some vulnerability 
with trading those strategies that are a very low win percent and you know very big wins. Uh, it's why I've designed my life otherwise. But I, I you know, I, I am not going to use a super tight stop because I'm going to wait for the market to already be moving back in the direction, and you know, then we'll see if it's right. Some complex pullbacks have three or four legs. And then it becomes a question of how many times am I going to do this? And sometimes, sometimes you give up right before it works. And sometimes you get it the third time. Yes. So from what I'm hearing, the complex pullback, again, you like to see momentum moving back in your favor before you look for an entry. And of course, the stops is not so tight. Right. Let's say if you were to look at a complex pullback on a daily time frame, it would probably be like, I'm guessing, uh, 8, 10, 12 candles. And, and it can be hard to see the price action because it's all on the daily time frame. So were there instances where you go down to a lower time frame, like a four or eight hour time frame, to not get really, a clearer perspective? Not really. That's uh, you know to to me, to, to me that's not necessary because I can see it on the daily time frame. When you you said you can't see the price action, what you mean, or what I think you mean is like you don't really know what's happening inside those candles, right? You don't really know what the character of that market is. Uh, you know, this goes back to my like I'm going to make the trade on the daily time frame. So I'm going to assess the market on the daily time frame, and in most cases, all of the information is there. The times that I will go down to a lower time frame, like when I'm, you know, showing the traders that I teach an example, I might go down to a lower time frame to show them price action. And by the way, sometimes, it, you know, I, I I do like all of this work out in the open. I generally don't prepare much in advance. So, you know, there are times that I'll be like, oh, look at this nice little consolidation. This hides a lower time frame consolidation. And I'll punch up an intraday chart and I'll see, well, shit, it doesn't. <laughs> so it just, it just it, it, what, what I thought would be there wasn't there. Uh, the, those sorts of things happen sometimes. But generally, uh, you know, you said eight bars. Eight bars is probably a really short complex consolidation, but it could happen. I would say you're probably looking at 10 to sometimes even 20, 25 bars. And what happens is there's kind of an interesting situation. Uh, it's not a complex consolidation, but there's this really long slow drift up in orange juice futures right now. On you know, People can check the date if they're listening in the future. And I don't know how it will resolve, but orange juice have been in a big uptrend, had a big blow off candle at the top and then reversed down. And now it's been making this little bounce up. It's gone longer than I think it should go. But I, you know, I, I've learned over the years that a lot of these pullbacks, this is one way I think the market tries to uh, kind of trick people. These pullbacks will go just to the point where you stop watching them. And I've seen so many times that I'll be stalking an entry, I'll be working my entry orders, and I'll be doing this for a few days. And I'll be like, are we really? Okay, it's not going to happen. And then, of course, the next day is the day that it goes. So what I have learned is that I nudge things just a day or two past the point where I feel like I should stop working or stop, stop watching that market, that that tends to kind of be a sweet spot for some of those breakouts. Some of them go on for a very, very long time. And let's move on to the final pattern, the anti pattern, right? So yeah, please so, you know, tell us more about it. Well, so we, we, there's also, I also wrote about breakouts, but we've been talking about those all along. And I think, you know, the kind of cool thing about the breakout is maybe you did this deliberately with your questions. It's nested in all of these other things that we're talking about It's an element of all of these other things. So the anti, uh, I recently have renamed the snap 
pull back. This is going to be a little bit hard to describe without charts, but the ante is a pattern and you can Google it. Uh, the term comes from Linda Rashke's book, I think 1996 book, Street Smarts. Uh, it was her and Larry Connors, I think wrote the book. Uh, there's a trade in there that was based on the slope of two indicator lines. So you would have the short, the long-term line would turn down for the first time. And, and so what that momentum is indicating is that a longer term trend is just turned down. And then you would have the short term line would pull up against that. So anti, you know, they're, they're going against each other. And what this shows is that the longer term trend is shifted to the downside. And we're assuming the market is going to resolve in the direction of that longer term trend. And the fact that the short term momentum is against it gives you maybe a bit of an entry edge. What I found over the years is I don't use the indicator that much. I don't use uh, the only way that I use an indicator, frankly, is to teach and to illustrate momentum. You know, so I can say, oh, this market made a big move and you can see it on the MACD. I didn't see it on the MACD. I saw it in the price structure, but the having an indicator can be a really great way to structure this. So I found myself not using the indicator and I found myself using trades that would occur in the price structure with that concept that did not show up on the indicator. And furthermore, ignoring, excuse me, ignoring many points where the indicator signaled the trade. So at that point, it's like, why are we even calling this anti anymore to begin with? So the other beautiful thing about this trade, and I do think that this is a trade where I've known several people over the years who have built a trading career just around this pattern. Uh, it's not that common, but the way that I rethink it in the snap pullback, it's not substantially different, but it's this idea of looking for a trend that is exhausted, the first momentum against the trend that was always in. If you read Street Smarts, it's and you should read the book. The, the book is still in print, so you should go buy it rather than pirate it. I hate all the pirating stuff out there. Uh, you should go buy that book and you should read it. There are good ideas in the book, good ways. It's a good framework to think about the market. This was always in that, but that idea of focusing on what's happening with the price structure really became the primary driver for the trade. And when it works, it resolves really fast. It's the best feeling to be in those anti-trades or as we're calling them snap pullbacks. Uh, so I named it snap because of the way the resolution is so sharp. Yes. So from what I hear, you're looking for like a, a trend to show like a sudden swift reversal, maybe followed by a very, maybe an uptrend and you've got a sudden one big candle reversing, right? Maybe the last two, three candles of gains. And yes. then I think the next thing you're probably looking for, it's if I'm not wrong, a pullback again, right? A, a, right. a bear flag maybe, right? Right, and exactly. Taking into account that, hey, you know, this downtrend could possibly resume down lower. Right. The, uh, the difference, one of the differences, that's exactly right. One of the differences between this and a standard pullback is... A lot of what catches my eye is a standard pullback. The market will have to make enough momentum to get to one of the Keltner channels that I use. So you, know, you can almost use that as a trigger for when to, not for a trigger to enter, but a trigger, I wanna be very clear about that trigger, for when to start looking for a pullback. So if the market is able to come down and touch the lower Keltner channel, I will then watch for those bounces to set up bear flags. 
it's it's not a hundred percent, but it does. You know, when we were talking about pullbacks, and say I want to see there's real momentum. It's a way to quantify the momentum. What you will see with the anti or the snap pullback is that many of those will actually set up around the moving average. So you've had this market that's been trending up. It's volatile, so the bands are wide. You will have this giant reversal that maybe takes you. So you know maybe the market was above the upper channel and now it's down below the moving average and three bars. So it's been a big move, but then this bounce starts that now goes back above the moving average. So you're kind of sitting here in the middle of the channels. If you're just evaluating it based on the channels, you didn't really have enough momentum to get to the bottom of the channel. So it's not really kind of in my standard pullback range, but that move that collapse from the trend extreme did set up enough momentum that you should have continuation. That's what really makes what really makes all of these continuation patterns work is that I'll go back to assessing character. You want to assess that the move that sets up the pullback should have continuation. I've said that before. I'm deliberately repeating myself. And then you want to assess the character of that pullback is a reluctant move against that momentum that you just had. And you can see that it's it's very hard to talk about, but if you, you know, you know, I have lots of free blogs and things you can look at to see. Once you've seen a few examples of it, you know, you did this yourself, you know, once you see a few examples, you're like, oh, okay. And then you kind of go and you start to see it in the market. And uh, like anything else, you'll make some mistakes at first. And one of the things that's hard, of course, is that some of your mistakes are not actually mistakes. You know, it's very, it's very hard because I could teach you this pattern and you could find what to my eye is a perfect example of the pattern. You could put the trade on perfectly and lose on the trade. You made no mistakes, but you lost on the trade. So it takes, this is one reason why it takes a while to learn to trade. You have to have enough exposures. So you start thinking and probabilities and intuiting probabilities rather than individual events. So I think we spoke a lot about patterns and entries in the earlier section. So now let's move on into you know, the other aspect, you know, we talk about trade management and stop losses, right? So so maybe let's talk about stop loss first, because that's also a very important, right, besides your entry. So I think stop loss, if I'm not wrong, right, you know, after following your work for a while now, uh, your stops is usually just below the pivot low or the pivot high. Did I get it right? Yeah, there's there's a little bit of room, but I'm usually outside the pattern. The exception to that is the failure test, where uh, you know if you go back to that failure test, you went up above. Let's look at a short. You went up above the level and then you collapse. I will usually put my stop inside the high of that bar. Could you expand more on inside the high of the bar? You mean just above the high or below no, the high? No, I, I, I mean literally, it, it's counterintuitive, right? I will put it literally below the high of that bar. So I am inside that bar. And the reason is because, frankly, if this trade works, it's going to work pretty quickly. If we start to work back up into that bar, we really should not be there. The trade's probably not going to work. And what you will find in some cases is if my stop is outside the high of that bar, there are very, very few cases where the market will come right back up to that high of the bar and then reverse. And I have a good trade. Now, you, usually, usually I'm fucked if we get back up to the high of that bar. But if I have my stop outside the high of that bar, what I'm inviting is to get hit on really good momentum and have really bad slippage. Or if it's the daily chart, 
to have a gap opening above that and then end up with like a two hour loss on some stupid trade that I knew wasn't working to begin with. So I will in that particular case, and this has actually gotten me a lot of hate. You know, I, I, I have some people online will be like, that's a really stupid thing to do. You don't know anything about reading price. Okay. I guess whatever. Uh, but that is, that, that, that's a counterintuitive thing that I think makes sense. Um, I think it's not so counterintuitive when you actually think about it. For consolidation patterns, my stop will generally be outside of the pattern. So if I'm if I'm buying a bull flag, the exception might be if something weird has happened in a complex pullback, because you can't have a complex pullback that like kind of begins to turn in the trend direction. So it set up some price structure that's actually above the low of the pattern. So I might then work off of that. But my goal is not to get the tightest stop possible. Uh, I'm also not looking for a really crazy wide stop. I don't need to give up a lot of room on that. A uh, little bit outside of the pattern. And then I will look to tighten the stop aggressively. And I think that this art of... Uh, it's something that I have a lot of limitations as a trader. There are a lot of things that I could do better that I wished I did better. But I think one thing that I do really well is this discretionary trailing stop approach. And uh, the only way I found to teach it is through multiple exposures. Like, you know, you show people a bunch of trades and you say, here are the trade management decisions I would make. And here's why and you kind of talk through them. And over time, it kind of becomes like an apprentice thing. You know, people see this working, uh, but the principles are that, so I'll get into the trade and right away, what, what I want to do is reduce risk. Now I'm not thinking that I want to get to a break even stop because a break even stop is like it's just some number I made up. The market doesn't actually know that, you know? Uh, now in some cases, maybe I took my trade at an actual breakout level and the market does know it, but let's assume the market doesn't know it. And it keeps us humble to say, it's just kind of a level that I made up. So there's no necessary goal to drive toward a break-even stop. But what I will try to do, let's say the kind of uncomfortable thing happens that you buy, a, you buy a breakout of a pullback and then the market just sits there. It doesn't go anywhere. So in that case, what I'll probably do, and I, I don't know, I, I haven't evaluated my stops in terms of ATR in a long time, but I'm guessing my stops are probably 1.5-ish, maybe two ATRs, just to give you an idea of what they would be. So what I will, and I think of everything in terms of R. R being the, and I think a lot of people think like this now, but just in case anybody isn't up to speed on it. So R being the initial amount that I'm risking on the trade. And we could express that in dollars. You know, what, what R really is though, it's the amount of movement on the price chart. That's how I think of R geometrically, but then we multiply it by position size to get your, you know, the PL impact. But the, um, what I'll try to do I'll just make some concessions. If that trade doesn't go anywhere, which is really a little bit unusual, I'd say maybe 20% of trades do that. I'll tighten the stop like 0.9R or 0.8R. You know, if just to, just to take a little bit of risk off the table, so I probably won't have a 1R. And you have to say probably because you get slippage or whatever. But uh, once the bar, once the trade moves in my favor, once there is a really big bar in the direction of the trade, which of course is really nice, then I'll move my stop up into that bar. 
And one of my rules is I will very rarely move the stop in the direction of risk. So I don't widen the stop. I'm always tightening the stop. There are some times that maybe I'll, I'll make a decision and the next day it'll look like a mistake. You know, it, and whether it was a mistake or not, I don't know. So I would say it's quite rare, maybe um, two out of a hundred trades or something. Maybe I have a case where I widen a stop a little bit, never past the initial stop. She's like, maybe I tightened it too much the day before. And there's a little bit more to it, but that's the idea. Basically, when the market starts to show me good momentum in the trade direction, I'll start to tighten quite aggressively. Also, uh, one of the things that has worked pretty well is to just take full profits at one R, which takes a lot of the trade management issues off the table because you're, uh, of course, you'll never have big wins, but you'll be driving toward more consistency there. Okay, so maybe just to backtrack a little bit, uh, from what I'm hearing, you said that if the market doesn't move in your favor, your stops, you just kind of like just tighten it, right? Maybe by 0.8 or 0.9 R just yeah. to manage your risk. And if it does move in your favor, let's say you get a momentum candle, assuming a bullish long trade, you will tighten your stops or trailer stops using the low of that recent momentum candle. Did Not I necessarily the low. Sometimes I'm in the bar. Sometimes I'm a little bit beyond it. There is some consistency to it, but uh, a lot of times, if, if there's a very big bar, my stop the next day is in that bar usually. In Maybe the bar. in the bottom okay. third of that bar. Okay. Is that like a an objective way that you quantify which part of the bar you set your stops or that's discretionary? Uh, it's discretionary. I think I'm, I think I'm pretty consistent because, you know, I have thousands of trades and uh, all of these are, a lot of these are recorded publicly. So people have gone back through and evaluated and I am consistent, but I don't think it can really be reduced to a rule set. I wish it could, especially as I think about, you know, more systematic approaches. I'd love to, I'd love to systemize it, but I think there has to be a discretionary input to it, unfortunately. Right. And, and earlier you also mentioned that your take profit level, it's I think almost at, at 1R. Is that like regardless of the price structure on the chart, whether is it at, you know, so support resistance, right? Probably, you know, that's quite a, a subjective level. So do you take into account price level or just, you know, flat 1R? Uh, I, I, I am aware of price level. Yeah. And I'll, I'll structure the trade around that. So there's no huge issue with that. Okay. So in other words, your, your one R is usually would be, let's say for example, resistance, you'll be below resistance and not above it. Right? Because if that's the case, the market has to work harder to reach your one. Gen generally speaking. Yes. Okay, I get what you mean. Awesome. So I'll, I'll talk about a little bit about a post I think you made on Twitter and Facebook, right? I saw you posted a bull flag pattern on the S&P 500 on the five minutes time frame, right? No surprise since you mentioned uh, day trading earlier. Right. So when you're trading on an intraday basis, from my understanding, the opening and the closing, it's more volatile compared to say the noon session where traders are away for lunch. So let's say you have a potential day trading setup, maybe trading the, the bull flag pattern. Does the time of the day matter when you take your entries? Um, I find that I'm, I tend to be pretty consistent through the day. So you, you have different expectations that follow through at different times of the day, but, uh, you know, I've never really been a trader who just trades the first hour or something like that. So I, I think there's opportunity spread through the day. Maybe back a little bit to the tick profit level. So let's say this time around you enter a trade and the market is really bullish, right? At all time highs, there's no price structure that you can reference from. Is it still going to be a one hour take profit or you might have a different approach? Uh, to that? I might have a different approach. I think there are times like uh, we've been doing a lot, have been doing over the past uh, previous 
weeks and months, I guess even, a lot of shorts in stocks and stock indexes. And my sense has been that those shorts are counter to the bigger picture potential. I expected the market to reverse and rally. So in that case, I've been very aggressive about taking one hour profits on the shorts. This is not a case where, you know, I was looking for stocks just absolutely collapse and continue sell, to sell off. Now, however, that we've turned, uh, I think it makes sense to stretch profits on the upside. And you can do that lots of different ways. You know, you can take partial profits at 1R and then trail on some, or you can just trail a stop. But uh, I definitely, and I guess this is a kind of multiple time frame analysis that if it's not explicit, you know, it, it at least is baked in there that I'm making some kind of assessment that based on the price structure on the monthly or weekly chart, that I think the daily trend has more potential in one direction or another. So yeah, I, that's absolutely something that I am aware of. Yeah. And, you know, judging from uh, what you said, right, you know, you trade off the lower time frame as an intraday trader as well as on the higher time frame. So you have experience trading across this different time frame. But for people who are maybe a year or less in trading experience, you know, there's going to be difference across these different time frames. You know, what's your take on it? I honestly don't know. I think that one of the everybody wants to be a day trader, of course, but I think day trading is the hardest trading to do for so many reasons. And over the years, I've had hundreds of traders tell me something like, I tried to day trade, I tried for years. As soon as I moved to a swing trading approach on the daily time frame, I did so much better. And I also had, you know, for many years, uh, I did a lot of work with institutional clients and some of that, a lot of that I still can't talk about, but these were traders. uh, This is both discretionary and systematic. I sold uh, trading signals to a lot of hedge funds whose names you would know. They would buy algorithmic signals from me to you know, then deploy in there, which is funny that I haven't done much systematic trading, right? I've developed (laughs) systems for them, Uh, but I, I would have many, many conversations with these teams where they'd be like, what time frame do you trade on? And I'd say, well, you know, I did, did everything. And, uh, but I found really the sweet spots kind of like, like two days to two weeks and time and time again, I heard yes, us too. So, and these teams had, you know, in some cases, literally dozens of PhD level quants crunching numbers and doing things. Now, of course, there are some funds that do HFT and that's quite a, you know, it's quite a different thing. But I think if you're, if if you're making systematic approaches, uh, there's probably objectively a better edge, a little bit easier to conquer the psychology of trading on the daily timeframe. But, you know, I, I would not tell a new trader to avoid day trading. I would remind them with constant caveats that you're, the statistics overwhelmingly say you're not going to make money as a day trader. Maybe you're the exception, but as long as, as long as we can be crystal clear that the deck is very much stacked against you, I think you can approach it as a learning opportunity because what you, the advantage you have as a day trader you got to make a lot of decisions. You know, uh, even if you're a slow moving day trader, you're still making two to three trades every day. And you're taking those trades from conception to completion, where if you're trading on the daily time frame, you might have to go a month to get that much, or you know, maybe even longer. So you get, and of course you can trade more actively. You could do 10 to 20 trades a day. 
So theoretically, there's an advantage. I think that this is something that I certainly benefited from, but I do think that a lot of people, you can develop a lot of bad habits. You can develop a lot of bad psychology day trading. As you can tell, like I don't have one clear answer to this, but I think it's very important for somebody. I think the only way, the only way that I would really raise red flags is if somebody thought they were going to start trading as a day trader and make a lot of money very quickly as a day trader. You're, you're still going to struggle for years. And I would bet if you do find success as a trader, it probably will not be as a day trader, but it doesn't mean that doesn't mean you should not try to climb that mountain because who knows? All right. <laughs> okay. So, so speak, so maybe away from day trading, let's talk maybe generally about discretionary trading. If someone wants to get better at discretionary trading, there are many ways they can do it. They can stare at the charts all day, you know, journal their trades, you know, read more books, courses, etc. So if you were to maybe start over your discretionary trading career over again, what what would you do differently or how would you approach it? Um, are you going to edit this or is this going to go up in one continuous uh, I'm, I plan to just upload it as to okay. a two-hour show well, in this case, yeah. So uh, the reason I ask is I, you know, I don't necessarily want to plug a course, but I recently have created a course to answer that. Do you want me to talk about? Yeah, um, yeah, please go ahead. Okay, yeah, okay. No worries. Yeah. Um, so I've thought about this for years, and I got, yeah, I, I put out so much material to teach people how markets move, to teach people like. You know how to think about the market, uh, how to think as a trader. But what the questions I kept getting, people would say like, "Okay, but tell me just what you asked. Like, what should I do? How 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 do I develop the skills of being a trader?" And I had pieces that I had used over the years, training traders. Uh, I did a lot of work with you know when I was at the New York Mercantile Exchange, and I left. Uh, a lot of the floor had completely closed down and there were a lot of floor traders who were trying to make the transition to the screen. So I helped a lot of those people. And a lot of them, frankly, couldn't figure out how to make the transition for different reasons. But you know, I had worked with so many traders that I had this framework that I finally this year put together into a course that uh, there's, well, if you want to see it, I'll give you access to it. Just email me, I'll set you up. Uh, I, I, this is the best thing I've done training traders by far. So what we do with this is we approach the problem from several directions at once. Uh, the first thing is I am convinced that many people struggle as a trader because they're trying to do something that is not right for them. They're trying to, you know, I'll tell you a story. I had a guy who uh, wanted to be, he wanted to trade the NASDAQ futures. He was very specific and he wanted to trade very actively on a five minute chart and he had a job. This was the problem where he could escape into a closet, literally a closet in his office where he had a computer and he could day trade. Now his problem was that he was a safety manager for a uh, steel refining plant. So, yeah, I, I, I said, I can't work with you because we're going to get somebody killed. Like, you, like, there's just no way. So you see people who are trying to do things that are incoherent with their lives or, frankly, people who have, like, deep-seated issues with money or self-worth and all of these things. So I think one of the things you have to do, and I know this is not, you know, like, people just want to learn the patterns. You want to, like, where did I push the damn button? But, uh, 
we approach this, first of all, from the standpoint of doing a lot of introspection, a lot of thinking about what has brought you to this point in your life, how you want to structure your life going forward. Um, I also included uh, a lot of work with meditation. I think a lot of meditation is, I'm utterly convinced, is not the solution to all of your trading problems. There are certainly people who say, all you have to do is do mindfulness meditation and you'll trade better. Well, that's not true. It's just, it, it's obviously not true. Uh, just because there are a lot of people who are fantastic meditators who could not make a penny trading. And it's obvious there has to be something else to connect the dots, but I figured out this framework that will connect it. Um, and then what you do is you cultivate pattern recognition by like these questions you have asked me about these patterns my real answer to you would be if you were asking me is not the experienced trader you are, but as a beginner, I would say, okay, you know, let's learn these patterns. Now you spend a lot of time. What's a lot of time? 40, 50 hours, maybe you go through hundreds of charts. You find examples of these patterns historically. So we're training your pattern recognition. And we'll do this with several different patterns and you'll develop, you will start to write your own trading book. So you'll have these examples of patterns. We're not done yet. The other thing that we will do is uh, this issue of random outcomes that we discussed. So you will start with, I have a deck of cards here on my deck, on my desk. Uh, this is a key part of the program. We start working through decks of cards seeking to understand what random outcomes feel like. And so you know, you'll look, you'll generate strings of trades. We'll weight them in different ways. I have this set of 13 trading drills that begins with a deck of cards and then moves you to the point where you're on a trading simulator and you're generating trades with a deck of cards. So think about what that does. If you, the problem for the day trader is you have a system you fund the account, you do a little bit of work on the demo and they are like, okay, whatever, you know, how the demo works and, you know, you just, you, and then, then you're live, you do all of this work, you wait for your pattern, you wait diligently, you see a trading signal, you put on the trade and you're all nervous. And, uh, and then what happens, and then you have to manage the trade. But now the problem is that all of these other things are focused into your psychology. So you're not just managing that trade, you're managing your entire hope for your future success. It's very, very difficult. However, what if I tell you, pick up a deck of cards and you pull a black card, so you push, you mash the buy button. Now, what analysis was involved in making that trade? What investment do you have in that trade? None, right? So now your job is manage that trade. And then, you know, once, once you're done with that trade, you pick another card and there's another long, you know, the card's black, so you put on another long trade and you red, you put on a short trade. So what we're able to do is to separate aspects of trade entry and trade management. And there's this whole like very disciplined framework where then we also turn it around. And now you've been doing work on pattern recognition. Now we use that to generate trades, but you're not responsible for managing them. And also you can see here that for many traders who there's this idea of a gray box system. Do you know what that means? Is that a term you've run into? No. So, so, you know, a black box is a system where there's just computer code. You don't know how it works. It tells you to buy or sell. And, and those never work very well for people for very long. Generally uh, a gray box is a system that will give you an entry signal or 
you might be able to work it the other way and you manage it as a discretionary trader. There, this is an aspect of like blended systematic discretionary trading that a lot of professional traders use, but people don't think about it because, you know, they think either I have to be fully systematic or fully discretionary, but this is, uh, you know, this way, this lets people experiment with both of the sides. And some people will find that they will in fact gravitate toward some kind of gray box where at least part of the trade management and you could do it the other way right you could you could look for your bull flag and you could enter your buy signal and then you could hand that off to some kind of, and a lot of platforms have this right some kind of trailing stop methodology that will take the trade management out of your hands i worked with a trader for years where uh, he was responsible for the trade entry and i was responsible for the trade management and it worked beautifully because neither one of us had any attachment to the trade. You know, he would do all of this fundamental work. You come up with all of these reasons to buy the trade. He would put the trade on. I would get it on my trading screen. Well, I have no investment in that trade. I'm able to look at it and evaluate very clearly good pattern or bad pattern. If I think it's a bad pattern, I just get out of it. We move on to the next trade. So this idea of being able to separate your responsibility for entry and exit. And then while you're doing all this, it's an enormous amount of work. This program done properly is hundreds of hours of work. Um, you are also building a trading plan. And with all, you know, all of this work that you're doing on yourself psychologically. Uh, I also uh, am a professional hypnotist. Like that's a, another thing that I haven't really talked about much. We didn't talk about it all tonight, but uh, so there are some tools in there for kind of reorienting your experience of risk or your, you know, your beliefs about trading and all of this together. <laughs> this is the best framework I've ever seen for training traders. It's not brand new, but it's been out a few months. We've had a couple hundred traders go through it and the reviews are just uh, like outstanding. It's, it's, I expected this to be good because I knew when I was making, I was like, this is the best work I've done. This is, this is better than the book. Um, but the feedback that we're getting from people exceeds my expectations. So yeah, if you, if you want to see that, drop, drop me an email and I'll make sure you get access. We'll do. And where can traders find out more information if they want to learn more about the program you've just shared? Sure. Is there like a link or website? Uh, so you can you can go to my blog, adamhgrimes.com. You also can check out my company, marketlifetrading.com. Everything is linked there. Follow me on Twitter is a pretty good thing to do because I try to tweet everything. Uh, we are coming here into the end of November. We're going to have some sales. So, uh, you know, hang out for a week or so until we get our Black Friday sales out and we have some pretty, pretty good discounts. But I think my blog, if you just want like, you know, if, if you just want one resource, there are hundreds of thousands of words on my blog. I went through and figured out like if I printed it out, it'd be like a 2000 page book. And of course that's all free. It's uh, Google has indexed it very well. So, you know, I said before, there's no edge to buying at a moving average. If somebody thinks it's not a, you know, smart thing to say, well, if you Google Adam Grimes moving average, that's going to pull up like 10 articles I've written where I'll show you the research that I've done. I, a lot of the statistical research that I've done is, uh, I think almost all of it's available to the public. So you can see the work, you can see the numbers, and, you know, I would love nothing more than for uh, someone to show me something I've missed. And I've had, I've had 
over the years, I had some people say, Hey, you know, I, I don't think you're thinking about this. Right. And so, you know, my, my thinking has evolved and grown from, because there's certainly people out there who have stronger math skills than I do. And it's great, great to, great to get feedback from people. So yeah, check out my blog, adamhgrimes.com. And that program is called Tradecraft. You also can Google uh, my name and Tradecraft and that will pull up information on the program. All right, and maybe just a couple of more questions before we, we close up today's session. Right, so a couple of questions that I'm, I'm curious to hear from you. So what significant changes right, have you seen in the trading industry over the last few years? Anything in particular? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a great time to be a trader. I, the access to information, the, uh, you know, like even when I was trading, when I started trading S&Ps in the, so when I, when I was trading the British pound, I was on a dial-up modem and I had a separate phone line to call my broker or eventually to call the clerk on the floor. And I would put in trades. And so I would speak to a person to execute the trade. I was day trading a five minute chart. How did this happen? I don't know. I would, but many, many times I would put in my order and then I would have to call to get out of the trade before I got the trade confirmation back. Uh, in the early 2000s, when I started trading the S&Ps, brokerages, like they would just shut down and uh you know there'd be no tech support it was it, but now there's so much information out there and some of the information is not good right because now there you know there are a lot of people who are claiming to make money who don't actually make money and there are a lot of people who are teaching things that just don't work so you gotta you gotta kind of sort through that but just thinking in terms of connectivity you have access to pretty much for free to information that only insiders would have had 10 years ago. Um, you have access to all the price data all over the world for very low cost and transaction fees, you know, commissions are zero in many markets. Uh, so I, I think it's a really, really good time to be a trader. If you're in the US, the micro futures are pretty liquid and what it will, you know, where before you might've had to try to learn to trade with a $20,000 account, now you can, you know, if you limit your risk, you can trade, you learn to trade with a $2,000 account. So I think, I think that's one thing. I think the um, new asset options obviously are becoming a bigger piece of the puzzle and, and there are more possibilities for ways to trade options. Um, there's more at the same time, you know, I said there's some of the like, scam stuff out there, fake gurus, but there's also a lot of really good research being published. There are a lot of academics that are publishing fully legitimate research that you can just execute on uh, until the, the funny thing is when it's published, it usually stops working, but at least it can provoke ideas for you to research. Uh, there are people like yourself who are teaching people how to develop systems, how to manage risk, how to, how to, I, I think there is, uh, there are, there are people who are doing the work that you're doing where you know, you're advocating for a sane approach to trading that somebody can do over and over for a long time. It's not, it's not just about a flashy marketing and a way to, to get rich quick. There are people who are telling the truth and telling it like it is. And I think that's, uh, that, that was a little bit harder to find when I started. It's not so much information. Earlier, you spoke about you're, you're more than happy, like, for example, the moving average, you know, you have data to back it up. But were there instances where maybe someone reached out to you, hey, Adam, you know, 
maybe this is something that you're missing, right? Or this is my piece of research. And then that led you to maybe change your mind. Do, do, did, that, did that ever happen? In some, in some cases, um, one of the, so we developed and, and we now publish something called power levels, which are based on geometric interpretations of short-term price action that are super effective support and resistance levels. And, you know, I, I try to really strike a balance between being open-minded, but not being too easily misled by things. Uh, and I looked at all of the levels that people publish, like, you know, the Camarilla levels and the pivot, all these different pivot levels that people publish over the years. And I found that none of them had any statistical edge, but uh, somebody pointed out, sent me an email and said that in his work, he had actually found some edge to some levels that I had hinted at in my work and suggested that I do more research on them. And so that project was provoked by somebody who suggested I look deeper at something I'd done myself. Um, the one thing that I, like the Fibonacci levels, I also don't find any value in those. And it is interesting that you don't really get mathematical refutations of those. You know, the people, the people who email me about things like that will tell me about the great trades they made based on Fibonacci levels, which of course is not proof, but, and they'll, they'll talk about how mathematical it is, but they don't really have mathematical backgrounds. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit unusual. I also get, it's like, uh, I get people sometimes send me manifestos of like trading ideas or like some secret they figured out. Somebody sent me something where they had tied cycles into some relationship with the pyramid at Giza. And so, you know, you, you, you do get a, a good deal of semi crazy stuff, but who knows, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe some people sent me some things that I missed. I missed the value of, but I, I find more than specifics. Uh, my interaction with people really provokes me to be careful and precise in my thinking. It's, it's made me, nailed down uh, and people have uh, sometimes pointed out some some things that I might be. And so I, I find that you're a pretty straightforward, you know, no BS person and with such a personality that is bound to offend people, especially if they hold certain beliefs that are very dear to their heart. So I, I, yeah. I, I won't be surprised if you get a number of hate emails coming away, you know, because you kind of like, you know, crush their beliefs. So have you yeah. ever encountered such, you know, emails and how do you deal with that? Oh, yes. Well, so... Um, one of the things that I know about myself, and again, this goes back to the tradecraft course that I made, we have people take a personality test early on. And I know from my personality profile that on basically like measures of politeness, I'm, I'm very low. So <laughs> I'm, I think I'm like the second percentile in politeness. Uh, so it doesn't bother me to offend people. Uh, I'm kind of okay with that, but over the years, some people have gotten really upset. I got, uh, when I was publishing macro research and institutional research, I uh, correctly called the top of the gold market years and years ago, and I got death threats, more than one. More than one person thought that uh, it was appropriate to send me an email uh, threatening to kill me because I called the top of the gold market. And people... Uh, 
what what happens, I think, like if I make a statement, like there's really no objective edge in Fibonacci levels, people are more likely to be just dismissive. And they'll say, oh, that guy's stupid. He does. He obviously doesn't know how to use Fibonacci levels. Or, of course, you know, the famous thing you'll get thrown back is, well, you're just using them wrong. Or, <laughs> you know, maybe you maybe they don't work for you, but they work for me, which there could be some truth to that, too. But they're also, I guess, the uh, when it comes to doing quantitative work, the thing that I have lived by is that you can't have something that is both really significant and invisible in the data. So if you tell me that Fibonacci levels are super important, I should be able to structure some kind of test that shows there's some kind of unusual activity around Fibonacci levels. If I can't, if, if we keep going at this and you know what what you can't come back and tell me is well you can't see it in the data so it, it can't be both really important and invisible it, it just it just doesn't work like that like for instance if you uh, if you do intraday tests with fibonacci levels you're going to find they look like coin flips if you do intraday tests around the intraday high and the low you're going to find they don't look like coin flips there there's very definitely an influence there and if you do intraday tests looking around round numbers, you're going to find something that's somewhere in the middle. It's not, you know, and so that, okay, I don't really know how we think about that. You're not going to find something that's clearly statistically significant, but it at least shows some hint of, you know, there's some, there's something granular happening there. And so, you know, I, I, I try to think about trading problems in a scientific way because when I put on a trade, that's effectively every trade is a test of a theory. And if I put on hundreds of trades, you know, if, if I had the wrong idea about the way things work, I'm probably going to lose money on this trade. So it's worth my time to figure it out. And I guess, to, you know, to figure it out correctly without losing money on it. And I guess I'm very, maybe more willing than a lot of people to not I have tremendous respect for tradition. You know, as, as a musician, uh, I very much live in tradition. And you mentioned cooking. I'm trained in classical French cooking, and that's a that's a very important part of how I think. And some of the, you know, I cook Japanese and I cook Italian, and I I, I try to like these traditions are very very important to me. But I think in technical analysis, what we have, or in trading in general, what we have with tradition is kind of this mishmash of stuff. That a lot of it just doesn't work, and so I am I am pretty willing to look at some deeply cherished belief of trading, and if I if I can't find if I can't make it work, I'm not convinced that the person who wrote it was as deserving of honor as we might think. Let's say. Okay, so yeah, take it up like you know two hours of your time, Adam. So before we go, I just want to do a quick recap. Where can the audience find you, just in case you know they sure. go to the end of today's video and you don't want to learn more sure. about your work? So check out my blog, adamhgrimes.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at adamhgrimes, and I do daily market analysis. You can find all of my courses at marketlifetrading.com. Awesome, right? So thank you so much for your time uh, today, Adam. I appreciate you know, the depth and details you go, especially you know, when we talk about the patterns, the way you manage your trade, your risk management. And very interesting to learn about your personal life, to know that you're actually born you know, in places where there's forest, there's trees, not like yeah. now everywhere is urban. And, and, yeah. and I was, I've been wanting to ask you earlier, you know, you know, how, it must be really good, I mean, at least from my point of view, to be around nature where the mind can just relax and not be around those 
high-rise buildings and cars, which is what I'm experiencing right now. But yeah, I think that that was really beautiful to know that that was the environment you grew up with, which is something that I think most of us uh, are lacking right now, given the circumstances so. that we are in. Yeah. So anyway, thank you so much for your time again, Adam. I appreciate you. Thank you for being on the show. Take care. This and was I fantastic. Talk thank to you. you. So happy to be here. I'm honored. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. We appreciate you joining us in this session of Trading with Rainer Show. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit tradingwithrainer.com for more resources related to today's session. That's tradingwithrainer.com. Until next time, good luck and good trading. <laughs>